You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Everybody. Um, my name's Bron Hamilton uh, and I'm a design manager and principal urban designer at the City of Melbourne. Um, thank you for coming out tonight. And um, can everyone hear me up the back, unaccustomed as I am to yep. microphones? Uh, we're really excited to be bringing um, this fourth and final event in our Excellent City series uh, to M Pavilion. Um, just before it gets really dark at night. Uh, I'll just begin with an acknowledgement of country. The City of Melbourne respectfully acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we are meeting on today. The Wurundjeri, the Woiwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We're committed to our reconciliation journey because at its heart, reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples for the benefit of all Victorians. I think um, we might just start with the, yeah, the format before. Sorry, some housekeeping. Uh, some housekeeping, there's hand sanitizer just for the panel members under here and other places if we um, pass the panel along. Uh, we hope you stay warm and hopefully it doesn't rain, but we've got some shelter there, so I think we're all right. Um, we have lots of apologies tonight um, in these strange times that we're in, um, a few sicknesses. So uh, Jocelyn Chu sends her apologies, the Director of City Design, uh, Alison Layton, the Deputy CEO, uh, Philip Thellis, who's stuck in Sydney with COVID, and also Councillor Rowan Leppert. So uh, I just want to acknowledge the huge amount of work that's gone into tonight by all of these people. Uh, and also the huge commitment to design excellence, which this is a kind of a culmination of. The City of Melbourne will be taking photographs tonight um, and also shooting footage um, for this event as part of the Excellent City series, and it's a great record. Um, we hope to share these photos and videos with you over the coming weeks and keep the conversation going. Um, if you don't wish to be photographed, um, or film, please let the photographer know and that's okay, or a staff member. Um, we also have a graphic recorder here today, Debbie Wood, um, who's over here, uh, with the very clever uh, skills that she has, and also the examples you can see of Debbie's work from the previous Design Excellence series, and Sky and Ella will talk to those shortly. Um, these are fantastic and a really great way to distill the key messages from tonight. Um, we are very interested in receiving your feedback on the topic of design excellence and more broadly. Um, if you scan the QR code, which I think is on some of the seats, um, uh, we can get your feedback through, I think it's a Slido link. Um, so please do that, it adds to the conversation. Uh, and there's a survey there that, that remains open for a week. So to the Design Excellence series, um, in October last year, we launched uh, two 
Design Forums, uh, the Design Excellence Advisory Committee and the Melbourne Design Review Panel. These, these forums are key components in our Design Excellence Program and demonstrate uh, that many years of hard work by people across COM, uh, the City of Melbourne, uh, uh, both past and present, uh, are heaps of dedication. These programs strengthen our commitment to delivering and advocating to excellent design outcomes for the city. And really that's the focus of tonight and we'll talk about that more shortly. Um, in addition to these forums, uh, oh, let me just go back. Tonight we're joined by many of our Design Excellence members, collaborators and including several um, who are participating in tonight's panel. Um, in addition to these forums of the Design Excellence Committee and Melbourne Design Review Panel, um, the approval of a planning scheme amendment C308 really led the way um, for better urban design outcomes in central Melbourne. Uh, this was late last year, not sure of the date. Um, and it was a significant milestone in the city. Uh, it introduced new planning policy, um, which really influenced the quality of design outcomes for new development. Um, this is part of a suite of measures um, and we're really exciting to be advocating for design excellence in this space. Today we conclude our Excellent City series. Um, the purpose of the city is to open the debate on what excellence really means. We see the series as a forum uh, to which to explore um, with experts, um, both from consulting and academia and many parts of the built environment, um, and also as a way of engaging with our communities and the broader public. Um, we've held three events on important topics um, related to design excellence. So the first of those events was inclusivity and intersectionality. So it was, uh, it was talk one. Uh, it was, the subtitle was designing equity in partnership with community development. The second event was Melbourne as an, ab an Aboriginal place and Sky's gonna give you a summary in a minute, um, which is design yarning in partnerships with Aboriginal people. And the third event was urban resilience. Um, in the context of the climate and biodiversity emergency. Um, and this was led by Danielle Dewson, who has done a huge amount of the organisation for tonight, um, who is also unwell with COVID. Um, so thank you for those panellists who are here with us tonight. Um, I now will move just to some introductions and I'll get you to introduce yourselves because you know yourselves better than I do. Um, Councillor uh, Rees, can I get you to start? And then we might go down the panel? Sure. Um, can everybody hear me? Excellent. Um, yep, I'm Nicholas Reese. Uh, I'm the Deputy Lord Mayor of Melbourne. Um, I also am the planning lead uh, amongst the councillors. Uh, and um, I'm absolutely honoured to be here tonight. And I feel almost that I'm not worthy to sit amongst uh, some, uh, some of the greats that we've got on our panel this evening. Hi, I'm Bridget Smythe. I'm the City Architect and Design Director at the City of Sydney. And I am Melbourne born and bred, but I haven't lived here for a very long time. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Carl Fender. Look, uh, thanks for coming along tonight. Gee, it's amazing to have even you wonderful people here. It's typical. Not typical, but it's one of those Melbourne nights. Look, uh, yes. 
Um, Sunday was great, though. <laughs> Look, um, I'm an architect. I've lived in Melbourne, um, grew up in Melbourne, started working in Melbourne, travelled quite a lot um, around the world in the pursuit of design excellence, uh, and came back to Melbourne after some years abroad in '95, and uh, been working in the practice of Fender Katsalides since then, uh, doing most of our work in Melbourne. So this is a really interesting evening, and um, it's a pleasure to be here and advocate for a great Melbourne. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. Um, Karen Alcock. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, Karen Alcock. I've got a practice uh, that deals mainly in multi-residential and small office buildings, generally under 25 metres. Uh, I work at the dirty end of the design um, spectrum, I suppose, in some of the that's plagued by VMs and uh, the, the like, and we try not to give up. Hi everyone, I'm Georgia Burks. I'm an associate editor at Architecture Media, um, a proud descendant of the Kimilaroi and Dungarees peoples, a graduate of architecture, and um, I also sit on the City of Melbourne's Design Excellence Advisory Committee. And pleasure to be here tonight. Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Suson. I'm a town planner at Track Consultants. Our office is about 10 minutes walk that way. Um, I was previously the planning coordinator at the City of Melbourne for about six or seven years, um, and I've been in private practice uh, both before and after that. So I've uh, been a planner in both private and local government. Um, I'm a member of the Melbourne Design Review Panel, and I gave evidence in support of Amendment C308, which was for the City of Melbourne, which was the, uh, the amendment that's introduced the new urban design provisions. Thank you all. So before we get into a kind of a panel discussion, I'm going to ask Ella and Sky to just uh, do a short reflection on the, um, the some of the other Design Excellence Series events. Thank you, Bronwyn. Um, so we've had three sessions prior to this one, and um, one of the questions I've been asked to talk about is why these three topics. So in reflecting on what design excellence means for the City of Melbourne, for us, critical aspects to success are collaborative processes and creating places that, are, that meet both the functional needs and reflect the values of communities. Our roles as city shapers is in the service of community and we value the responsibility we held to the environment and urban systems. As landscape architects, architects, industrial designers and urban designers, we're driven by multidisciplinary practice, drawing on expertise and research that extends beyond the typical realm of design. In thinking about the topics for these series, equity, designing for country, and resilience are key topics which sit at the forefront of our ethos as design practitioners and are also strongly aligned with Council's goals and our work with colleagues across COM. So each of these sessions has been delivered in collaboration with other sections of City of Melbourne. And I'll now hand to Ella to talk about the first. Thanks, Guy. My name's Ella Gauchy-Seddon and I'm a landscape architect with City Design. And it was my honour to organise and um, chair the Designing Equity talk. Um, so the Designing Equity... Sorry. Designing Equity was a collaboration with the Community Development Branch, also at City of Melbourne. It was born out of conversations around... Um, firstly, the Victorian Government's Gender Equality Act, which some of you might have heard of, as well as our recently approved inclusive Melbourne strategy and the neighbourhood plans that we're also developing at City of Melbourne. 
Our panellists were Simona Castricum from University of Melbourne, Lara Brown, who is a DIAC member, Gahana Watty, who is from Hanson Partnership, um, Michaela Okuto, also from University of Melbourne, um, and Nancy Pierazio um, from the Community Development Branch at City of Melbourne. We were really lucky to have this knowledgeable, insightful and generous panel. They spoke largely from their own experience and that required a lot of vulnerability, um, for which we are truly grateful. It allowed us have, to have a candid conversation that revealed some really key takeaways. Firstly, to achieve design excellence, we must include everyone in the process of creating our city. This includes people within the margins. It means stepping back and allowing them to speak and importantly, listening. We need more of the diverse community who are impacted by our decisions to be at the table in decision-making capacities. We learned that often the most important providers of community and services for the queer community are nightclubs. So we need to make sure that we don't shut these places down. We learned that we need to consider the needs of disabled people and their carers in the design of third spaces, which is everywhere that is not your home. When a disabled person is excluded from a space that can extend to their whole family, the impact of this is significant. We learned that even though 50% of our population in Melbourne is a migrant, many migrants still feel excluded and lack a sense of belonging. We need to do better at finding our similarities and asking the right questions. Questions like, where are you local? Where is your local? And where do we belong? Community is fundamental to creating places and truly livable cities. If we build strong communities and look after these communities, we also create custodians who will look after and contribute to the ongoing success of our cities. We also spoke about the need to create better homes for the inner city. This means affordability, amenity and functionality for everyone, including families. We need to design choice. Singularity is not an option. We need to consider the needs of nighttime users and not just consumers of the nighttime. We need to have confidence to speak to non-converts. And perhaps most importantly, design must be in service to the community. Everyone has a right to the city and we are responsible for ensuring this. And now I'll hand back to you, Sky, to talk about Design Yarn. Thank you. And to introduce myself properly, I'm Sky Haldane, Principal Strategic Design in the City Design Branch and Green Line Branch as well. I had the pleasure of um, planning and hosting the design yarning session. And this discussion really evolved from a series of design yarns which we have been having internally at the City of Melbourne since 2020 in, our, in collaboration with Aboriginal Melbourne. In delivering Council's commitments to be a city with an Aboriginal focus, these conversations are growing our knowledge of the role design can play in supporting reconciliation and increased cultural awareness and capacity in our work with Aboriginal stakeholders. Recognising and celebrating Aboriginal culture in our built environment can create a broad spectrum of benefits to the whole community and the environment that comes from understanding where we live through the lens of traditional knowledge. Our wonderful panel included three Aboriginal people in Auntie Joy Murphy Wandon, a Wurundjeri elder, Sarah Lynn Reese, Indigenous Design Advisor at JCB Architects, and our most recent um, Director of Aboriginal Melbourne, um, Jason Eads and non-Aboriginal um, design practitioner Anne-Marie Pisani, um, Senior Associate at Aspect Studios. In asking our panel, how do we see Melbourne as an Aboriginal place? 
their responses highlighted the need for significant shift, both in how we can see the country that is and has always been all around us, but also the big change that is needed to bring all people to an understanding of that country. The discussion highlighted the need for traditional owners to have a seat at the table and the opportunity to be a leading voice at that table right from the start, and also for the laws and values of country to be understood at the outset. As non-Aboriginal people, we also have a responsibility to be enablers, to build strong, trusting relationships with traditional owners and support processes that allow their, their aspirations and priorities to form the foundation of the work we deliver together. The panel discussed the opportunity and responsibility we have as designers for the impact our work has on country. We need to examine the systems we have in planning and design and review and update them to make sure we are not causing more harm to country and Indigenous people. Projects operate on a spectrum which can destroy, maintain, repair or celebrate. We are reminded that if we look after country, country will look after us. The conversation also identified the need to build capacity and provide the resources that traditional owners and communities need so they can be involved. Ensuring reciprocity, reciprocity enabling self-determination and having the conversations that ensure culturally appropriate engagement processes and respect for their priorities. And I'll hand back to Ella to talk about the resilience. We're almost done, I promise. Um, so this event was hosted by Danny, Danny Orduson, um, as Ron mentioned, um, and was a collaboration between the Climate Change and Resilience branch. Um, it, was, it looked to recognise the City of Melbourne's Declaration of Climate and Biodiversity Emergency that was declared in 2019. The panellists were uh, Tiffany Crawford from City of Melbourne, Florian van de Corput from Sustainability Victoria, Stephanie Webb from Designing, sorry, Stephen Webb, my apologies, from Designing, Amelia Tompkins from Arup, um, and was co-moderated by Sarah Bell from the University of Melbourne. The panel discussion revealed that resilience is not just about resilience of environment or infrastructure. It's not just about resilience to climate change or, or pandemics. It's about ensuring that our urban systems are designed to ensure we are ready for whatever challenges might come our way. Social infrastructure is just as critical to the equitable function and well-being of communities as the physical design of places. State and local government have a role to play as advocates for urban resilience through policy development, research and collaboration with businesses, developers, architects and planners. Governments must also empower communities to take action on their, in their own neighbourhood and to identify the kinds of changes that are needed to improve overall well-being. Built environment professionals love designing buildings um, and built form. Um, but from an urban resilience perspective, conserving and reducing is fundamental. 40% of, of emissions come from buildings. The real question is, do we need a building? Emulating nature in the way that we plan our cities was one of, one of the ways to envisage a resilient urban future. Nature-based solutions in our buildings and places ensure our assets work harder to provide community benefit, social benefit and climate benefit. And in conclusion, this first Excellent City series has revealed significant and important connections between these three topics. We plan to continue exploring these with our partners at City of Melbourne through our projects and research. 
We hope to bring you further public discussions on these themes with collaborators from across industry, academia and community. It's important that we debunk designing excellence as design-oriented team, as a design-oriented term, and bring these important conversations to the community about how we value and shape the city. Thank you, Sky and Ella. They were amazing events, and a uh, little, little more provocation is needed. But on today's topic of design excellence with this panel, um, the City of Melbourne's Design Excellence Program recognises that design excellence is measured by the function, livability, sustainability, and public contribution of our buildings and urban spaces. And it can be achieved in projects of any scale and value and is not limited to high cost or iconic buildings. So something for our panel to think about. In this final event, we will be continuing the discussion of the definition and role of design excellence for Melbourne. We will also explore design culture and what elements create a great design culture in cities. The City of Melbourne has an important leadership and championing role uh, in design excellence, demonstrating through our investment in public projects that service, uh, servicing existing and future communities, advocacy for best practice, process and new policy to enable design iteration and testing is important. As demonstrated through the diverse conversations explored in the Excellent City series, a culture of design excellence requires design champions across the community industry, academia, and all levels of government who understand the value of design and will advocate for and demand its achievement. So I'm now going to hand over to our design champions, um, really on the question of um, what is design excellence um, and, and what is your Melbourne moment for design excellence? Um, can I start with you, Councillor? Thanks. Very much for that, uh, Bronwyn. Um, so the question is, what is design excellence? That is a very deep and philosophical question to start with. It's it's like asking the question, what is beauty? Uh, it's it's very hard to uh, well, beauty is very hard to define even in poetry, and design excellence is uh, near on impossible to define in statutes and planning regulations. Um, but we do know it when we see it, and we certainly know it when we don't see it. Um, sitting here, you know, I just look over the road, St Kilda Road there, at Roy Masters' masterpiece there of the um, NGV gallery. And, you know, if it was described to you, you know, as a 200 metre long unbroken wall, except for a single entry point in the middle, you'd probably think that was ghastly. But if it was a beautiful bluestone wall with a, with a, a lovely archway surrounded by a water moat in the beautiful setting of St Kilda Road with the trees and the canopy and everything around it, suddenly it does become a building which truly is uh, design excellent. So I think place, context, a commitment to um, materiality, good materiality and, and thoughtfulness um, through every aspect is absolutely critical. Um, the most simple test for me though is I think does this building or structure or place give back more to the city than what it takes? And so I think too often, you know, we see proposals that come before us at the City of Melbourne, um, you know, towers that are nothing more than a spreadsheet in the sky. 
that are all about maximising a developer's profit and not giving back to the city. So, um, uh, yes, for me, it's very much about what does what do our buildings, what do our places, what are the things that we're designing give back to the people, give back to the city, and um, th I think that's the ultimate test. Thanks, Councillor Rees. Um, so, Analia and more nuanced question now for, for Bridget Smythe. Um, what elements contribute to a great design culture? Um, and how is Melbourne, and probably other cities, distinct from... Uh, distinct from other places. Do you mind if I go back with my elevator? Can everyone hear me? Yeah. yeah. Elevator pitch on what design excellence is? Because I think that leads into what the elements are. Um, I think, you know, it's such a complex sort of proposition, but I like to kind of think of it in really simple terms as a kind of design excellence is a sort of complex ecosystem that ensures that a building, a public space, a street, a park, is design that's fit for purpose, that's lasting, and that enhances human experience rather than repel it. So, you know, your point is if it doesn't kind of resonate with the human spirit, um, it's, it's not design excellence. Um, that complex ecosystem is incredibly kind of challenging and it is at the core of what design culture is in many ways. Um, for me, the kind of elements that really kind of create that kind of design culture that enables design excellence are kind of, in my mind, threefold. At the City of Sydney, and I've been there for 20 years, and I would say creating a culture of design excellence takes an extraordinarily long time. Um, we've sort of focused on kind of three aspects. Um, first aspect is having a really strong kind of strategic vision of where you want your city to be. What is this sort of vision? And we have a very um, democratic kind of process in which we create a kind of strategic vision for the city called Sustainable City 2030 and now we've just released Sustainable City 2050 and it really kind of talks about the vision of the city um, and that is then supported by a whole series of strategies and policies that enable us to get there, one of which is our competitive design policy but strategies on greening the city and, and a whole raft of strategies that um, help produce the roadmap to get to that strategic vision. The second part of these kind of key elements of the design culture is the governance and process by which you um, shape the city every day. And those processes are really core of having skilled staff and capabilities in your organisations. Um, our design review process, which we put in place back in 2007, is really core to that as well. Um, and then finally, another really key component of um, creating that design culture is showing by leadership. It's fine to put in place planning policies and have lots of motherhood statements and so forth, but if you can't show the private sector or show others what design excellence is, then you've got a problem. So we take great pride at the City of Sydney in the development of our own public projects through competitions or other means, whether they're swimming pools, libraries, whatever. So I think those sort of three elements from the sort of strategy, policies, uh, to governance and ability to implement to actually what you actually implement. To me, are that kind of ecosystem, and there's many more aspects to it, that really shape the design culture that over a period of time can create design excellence. Sounds a bit like a toolkit. Uh, Carl, can I ask you to address that same question of, um, of design culture, probably how Melbourne's design culture is distinct from other cities and, and design excellence more generally? Yeah, look, um, there's something about Melbourne 
it is different. There's a reason that it was called the most livable city in the world for seven years. I think it probably still is, uh, forgetting the last two years of warfare. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, you can create all the statutes, you can create the bodies, and by the way, I think that the uh, Melbourne City Council and its um, program with the DAP, you know, Design Excellence Advisory Panel, these are great ways of engaging with the public, getting community into the, into the halls, the hallowed halls, uh, and, and helping to enrich the debate. But Melbourne's gone through an incredible process over the last 20 years, and that is based on getting people back into the city. And if you get people back into the city, um, a number of factors are at play. First of all, they need to be happy. So the, 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 residence, the residences that you create for them have to be of quality. We're all, we're all about quality. I mean, it doesn't always happen, but it's what we're all about. We want to make, we're all here to make Melbourne a better city, starting from the bricks and mortar. The other thing that they need is facility, and you know, we're changing the nature of the city. It's becoming more bicycled, it's becoming more green, it's, it's all of these great things that are happening to, uh, you know, make Melbourne a great design centre, and it's becoming imbued. It's part of the DNA. So, yes, I mean, all of the programs that we can put into place to create better design are one thing, but this city's on the march. It is definitely a design-based, design-excellence-cultured city. It's events, it's, it's fabric, it's mixture of heritage and modern. All of these things are wonderful, and so I'm the ultimate optimist. I just think that... Um, the quest for good design will carry. It has to. Thank you. And, and other panellists, you can feel free to respond to, to each other. If Sorry, you like. can I ask, Carl, does that mean mm. there's nothing left to do? No, no. <laughs> I said, we are on a march. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, it can only get better. We learn from our mistakes. We, we, com we communicate, we advocate, we do all of these things, but you need to have that... Uh, energy and sensitivity to go forward. And I think it's, it's foremost on everyone's minds uh, in Sydney, in, in this city particularly, and, uh, and therefore I'm optimistic. Great. Um, so that's probably a good segue into another question, which is about how do you see uh, your role um, as leading in design culture? And I might get Karen to start on that, but others can move on probably with that same question. I didn't prepare this answer very well, so... Um, but, I mean, just picking up um, from Carl's comments there, I mean, all these aspirations are great, but as architects and design pro professionals, we can't do it without the support and the toolkit uh, to help us, you know, push challenges through. I mean, if we'd looked at the gallery over there, I mean, if you tried to take that to planning and said, you know, let's put that through, it wouldn't get through. Oh, it needs an active frontage, it needs this. I mean, you know... And I, um, you know, and I think that, no, no, well, I wasn't, I mean, I know, I don't want to, I didn't really want to play a cheap, you know, cheap shot, but I do think that, I mean, it comes back to what design excellence is, it's sophisticated, it's not one thing, it requires resources, it requires support. I mean, it's great that the City of Melbourne is, is actually, you know, investing in it 
and, you know, investing in great people because it does take champions inside and outside of council. I mean, I, I worry about what happens to the rest of the bloody city, you know, beyond the, uh, beyond the, the, the walls of uh, the city of Melbourne. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it just takes support and we need to understand that, you know, it's not... It's not an active frontage. It's not a tick in the box. It's not a line and report and says, this is design excellence. You know, I don't know, most councils are not in a position where they could assess design excellence. I mean, most architects aren't, quite frankly, because design excellence to me, and I'm going off the track, but I've got the bloody mic, but, um, <laughs> well, it's, it's quiet. It's the quiet. It's the things that aren't the cover of the magazine or... You know, even the award-winning things, it's the quiet moments that make a difference. And now I am going to pitch something because I think as architects, we change culture, right? And we sometimes as a profession forget what our job is. And it's not draftspeople and it's not this and it's not that. We actually are sophisticated um, people who understand cities, who can add layers of sophistication to cities that no other profession can do. And I think supporting architects making sure that we're giving them the resources and the support within councils and whatever is super important. And, and, yeah, I mean, I suppose my job is to push, is to be a pain in the ass and, and to fight with councils and, you know, not accept and no. And clients, yes. We're, we're working together and we're pushing or risk manage or use design smarts or, yeah, that sort of thing, I think, is where we make a difference. Because is it my turn now? We're going like that. Okay. <laughs> Karen, Karen. Um, <laughs> my turn. Um, I guess a couple of things in my mind. Um, thinking about the question earlier about what sort of adds to design culture in Melbourne, I kind of think that we have this amazing overlap between the design industry but also other creative industries and that really brings sort of inspiration and, and challenges designers' ideas about what what the building could look like, but also what other um, how, how those creative industries are filtering into architecture or, or um, other built environment designs, and I think um, I think also Melbourne has quite a tight knit of um, of uh, design of a design community, and I think that's a really good thing because sometimes um, good ideas or you know challenging your friend on an idea in a casual format actually create um, or, or fosters new new ways of thinking um, and that in sense sort of, you know, you're sort of challenging what design excellence could be amongst friends and then that sort of butterflies effects out. Um, so that's just sort of my contribution to the question earlier. Um, and I guess my role uh, and how it's leading, or what was the question? It was leading design, uh, yeah, influencing, you... influencing design excellence. Um, I guess what we do at Architecture Media is a whole range of things and particularly with Architecture Australia we're constantly looking about what's happening in the industry um, and who's doing great things in the industry um, and I think that's quite quite a privileged role and also um, we take that with, with a lot of importance um, because we're sharing that with architects, um, what is design excellence? It's being published. It is going on the cover of a magazine. Um, and one of them was um, Studio Bright's uh, Women's Housing Initiative recently, Designing for Dignity, uh, which I think is currently out now, um, which is a I mean, I'm probably being biased. I think it's a great issue. Um, but anyways, uh, I think the, my role um, 
is two parts there is with the as an associate editor at Architecture Media and what we do there is sharing with the industry and the built environment industry what we're seeing, who's doing new things um, and then with other sort of platforms like the M Pavilion where we're having conversations, getting um, designers or other professionals who are adding to the built environment, whether that is in healthcare or education and giving them that platform. But probably more on a personal level um, as a an Aboriginal woman, my my role in sort of influencing design excellence is sort of, and in the role sort of relating back to being um, a part of architecture media is the fact that I'm finding and seeking out all of these amazing Indigenous designers and amazing academics and um, who are, you know, pushing for change, pushing um, and giving them that platform and then also making sure that the Indigenous voice is a constant voice. It's not just for a, a, one specific thing or a, a typical uh, one topic for an article or, or an event. Um, it's always there. We're always on country. And so, you know, that, that's what I think is my influence. <laughs> All right. Um, I might start just briefly talking about design excellence. Not necessarily what design excellence is, but what you need to have in order to get to design excellence. And I think... More than anything, that's an understanding of context and place, um, an understanding of what makes a place special, what what it is about a particular building fabric that that evokes a response, um, what it is about activation, I don't know activation of a space and why it's active and why it's being used that way, um, and to get to that understanding of context, no one person can have that understanding, so you can't do that in a vacuum. Yeah, and you can do that through visioning and through structure planning and through strategic work, but you can also do it um, on, at a more micro level when you're dealing with projects by engaging with um, experts in the field. So you, you'll engage a heritage consultant to give you advice about what's important in heritage terms. You'll engage a structural engineer to tell you, you know, where the structure's going to go, which will inform how the building gets designed. You'll engage a waste engineer, one of the most important consultants you can engage when you're dealing with buildings in the central city, so that your waste room doesn't end up on the street or you know, in an awkward place. So surrounding yourselves with a, a, a design team, uh, this is how I try and influence design when I'm working in private practice and even in local government, just surrounding yourself with a design team that can give you that information, give you that feedback, is where you get, that's how you get design excellence. This is how you get the outcomes that you, um, you otherwise might not get. Um, Melbourne moment, can I? You can Melbourne moment, right, but then I just, I'd like you to um, yeah. respond to Karen's provocation about about where design excellence fits within the planning scheme. Okay, I can do that too. Um, my Melbourne moment, I, I, and I was thinking about this long and hard, and I was thinking about DeGrave Street, and I was thinking about these wonderful places in the city, but my Melbourne moment is a project I didn't work on, but I, I live every day, which is the, um, the Mervac, what Mervac and Six Degrees did down here on Riverside Quay. Um, it's a, it was a series of commercial office buildings built in the 80s. Um, Carl's office is just back behind there as well. Um, glass facades, very little activation, very little interest. And they came along and they just, they, they almost embedded a Melbourne laneway culture or tried to, and I think they've been quite successful by just creating little restaurant cafes and changing the feel of the spaces and changing the, the ground plane and putting bricks down. And, and it's really lifted the whole nature of the place. You've gone, I've gone from working in a place that was a commercial sort of, you know, very 
harsh environment to be this, this wonderful place that I enjoy going out into uh, every day. So, second part, the provocation. Um, da Daniel? Sorry. Can yes. I just ask what square are you referring to? Uh, Rivers, uh, Riverside Quay. It's um, oh, yes. uh, 6121, the Price Waterhouse Coopers building directly across the road, from the, across the Evermorker Bridge and yeah. just in and around. Asado and all of those. Just I know one, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, the provocation. Uh, so, and I, and I don't think I'm going to disagree with Karen necessarily, but I, I think there is a role for planning controls in providing guidance because without that guidance, without that policy, without those provisions, we don't have a toolkit. We don't have something that says, and particularly in terms of C308 and the work that's been done there and the Central Melbourne Design Guide, which I think is an amazing piece of work, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to go out and have a look. You can jump on the website. Central Melbourne Design Guide has uh, diagrams describing the sorts of things the city wants to see and the sorts of things the city doesn't want to see. And that's the best way to, um, in my view, explain to someone why you want activation, why you want um, uh, high-quality materials at the ground plane, what's important about not having loading bays breaking up a street frontage and why that's all important. So... Um, the important, Is it, yeah. Isn't it a bit of a pity, though, you have to tell people that? Yeah, I it mean, is. And, you know, it, it sort yeah. of says, it's sort of, once again, I mean, you don't design a ground plane from a series of, look, I think it's a great document, but I think it's also like you need to understand the city. It needs sophisticated teams yep. to design good buildings. And but, unfortunately, people will take that. And under-resourced planners at times will say, oh, well, you're not doing that, so you can't do anything else. And they're the arguments. I mean... I have a lot of faith in the City of Melbourne planning team because yeah, I've no, no, employed half of them. So, um, <laughs> but, but just saying that I, they're great documents, yeah. but they don't mean that they do improve. But, you know, the sophistication for design excellence is another level on top of I, that. I, yeah. Absolutely. I agree. I'm agreeing with you. Um, but I think what, what we're also doing, Karen, is... Um, um, your firm, your firm is a wonderful firm who does wonderful work. There are a number of firms that don't do such good work. No, not Carl. Carl, you also do wonderful work. Um, so, sorry, I just, just had to qualify. Even the, even, <laughs> even the tall ones? Even the tall ones. Eureka is one of my favourites. Not the ground plane so not much, but the, yeah. Um, but the... Everyone's a critic. <laughs> But the, yeah, so I lost my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> it was your plan, Karen, wasn't it? Um, no, 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 no. Because I, yeah. we agree, right? We, I mean, we, I do. we agree. I just think that it's important to, you know, resourcing is so important. But, but don't you want to have, you want to have the ground rules, but you also want to have some flexibility to move. And yeah. I think one of the things we introduced in Sydney back in 2000 was the competitive design process. Mm. And it was about lifting the quality. It was actually about breaking a bit of the cartel of what had been happening in Sydney and creating the environment where, yes, there were planning rules established, but there was flexibility and there was a peer review system. Now, it's not perfect. We've had 140 competitions since 2000. Actually, the first one that was won was won by Nation Fender. It was World Square. It was the first competition that was introduced. But it has absolutely lifted the game in Sydney um, across the board, across, you know, a multiplicity of things. And one of the key things is um, we get to influence the brief for these projects. So from a client, from an architect's point of view with the client, um, as a consent authority, we're getting to manipulate the brief to extend it, to respond to its context, to, to, to kind of listen to the city. 
and it really helps balance the kind of broad issues that have to be resolved and it puts it, you know, in the centre of the competition process, which I think helps you as architects. Mm, definitely. Could and what about, what, about, what about the word should instead of shall in our statutes? Should instead of must. Yeah, well, sh shall is must. Yeah, I don't think that must is the one that appears everywhere in no. the City of Melbourne planning but, scheme. But, but all I'm really saying is that it allows a certain amount of um, justification of design work and, um, and it also allows things to be thought of outside of the square. So these rules that come in make a lot of sites improbable to do anything on, which could benefit from, you know, uh, changing with the times and, and growing our city and making it an exciting place. I think if that flexibility was there, it would be great. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of technical things that are easy to discuss and debate. The intangible one to me is the one... I mean, the pragmatics, the impacts, they're all measurable. But at the end of the day, design excellence to me is encountering a place, space or building which lifts the spirit. And if you walk into a place and all of a sudden you're taken to another realm and another sort of voyage of thinking and discovery, I, I think that's what it's all about, some sort of... Ins inspirational spaces. Spaces that some, as an architect, you walk into and there's even a tinge of jealousy that you, <laughs> you didn't think of it yourself. Can I Any jump in? Oh, you go, Karen. Oh, I just want to do my Melbourne moment. Uh, and I know it's only a temporary, this structure was a temporary thing um, in rising last year, but when we're talking about, Carl, you know, having that enhanced feeling or this... I find it as more of a, a memorable moment where I'm going, oh my gosh, I have to tell everybody about this place or I love this so much, was Kevin O'Brien's black box for um, rising and it was just perched up in the botanical gardens there. That was a sensory experience, one that really sat with me. It was sound, it was smell, it was touch. Um, and it was, it was listening um, and it was just brilliant. And that was something that I think, you know, even though it was temporary, um, quite a lot of people were involved, architects, urban theatre projects, um, uh, Auntie Caroline Briggs, um, you know, all of these things were happening in that one piece of architecture that was temporary. But I just, you know, that is something that to this day I think about um, and think about how I can get back into that piece of architecture. Thank you, spine-tingling places. Um, uh, I wanted to ask the question to Carl to join some dots together. Um, clearly, Carl, you've seen the passage of time of planning scheme change um, and also been involved in, um, you know, the first stage of the City of Sydney competitions process. Um, what's your view about um, what have been the, the high points uh, in terms of enabling design excellence? And I guess what are the barriers implicitly? It's a great question and it's, a, um, it's the topic on all architects and all planners' um, minds. Um, I think the biggest hurdle is actually um, dealing with the process, that planning process, where you don't have the opportunity to have intelligent conversation. You talk 
to um, very often to junior people doing the best they can. They haven't had the experience, and I, you know, I, I feel for them. And it's like talking at a level that's just not comprehended. The issues are not comprehended. The potentials are not comprehended. It is black and white, and we, we do always run into that. How's this? We've done a twin tower scheme on the corner of um, Exhibition and La Trobe. It's a twin tower scheme. It's quite a majestic kind of presence. It's high rise and all of that, but you know, it's part of the city, the fabric, the, the, the strangeness, the compellingness of the city. Any rate, working within the rules, it was totally compliant. And um, we waited a year for the permit, but as we were, as, as we kind of left the room, as it were, we were told that one tower had to be shorter than the other. Now, that was one gentleman's view of what constitutes design excellence, but there was no conversation. There was no ability to say to that minister that wherever you look at two towers, one is taller than the other because of perspective. Can I just emphasise the word minister, not councillor, uh, there in Carl's response? Uh, I believe the uh, equi-height of the towers was supported by the City of... No, it definitely was. And while I'm at it, could I have my Melbourne moment? My Melbourne moment is Melbourne because I think it is such an aggregation of wonderful experiences like that little courtyard, like everywhere you go in Melbourne, something unfolds that you encounter. It's people, it's places, it's, it's, it's new things, it's old things. My God, you stand, you, you go up in front of Parliament House and there's William Stanton's fountain. It's the most beautiful piece of sculpture and it just sits there with this incredible history, this convict who was a bit of a bastard, to tell you the truth, but he managed in jail to make this beautiful piece and put it there. And you just, you find these things in Melbourne. I think Melbourne is just, um, you might be able to tell that I'm a bit of an advocate for this city and with great reason, I think it just keeps unfolding. Can I jump in? I just want to respond to this. It makes me sad, Carl, when I hear you talk about your disappointment in the process and you get to the end of this project and suddenly it has to change. But it, it reminds me of the sort of failure of the governance system that we've got a city that doesn't have a kind of overarching choreography. And, you know, we find, find this in Sydney. Big parcels of the city are carved away from the city and, you know, the state government are approving projects that we would never approve. And so suddenly you've got this disjunction and you're trying to kind of choreograph a city. You know, we're all trying to come on this journey together and, and yet you've got this sort of disjunction where the city's intervened with. And, you know, I don't know what people think of Barangaroo. Jury's out in Sydney. But, you know, to put very large buildings on a waterfront in a city kind of seems a bit of an anathema, you know. Not really the right sort of planning decision. Um, so, you know, there's all... It's just so complex. It's such a complex kind of web of arrangements. Um, but if you do think of the city as a jigsaw, you know, it's every piece of it matters to the other piece. Yeah. And I guess this is the bit in Sydney, and that's why I really reinforce having a strategic plan and kind of one that's driven by community and endorsed. It means for every piece of the jigsaw we do in Sydney, we have an imprimatur from the community. We've heard 
And we kind of really see every time we shape a piece of the city in response to that big strategy, whether it's greening the city or dealing with water, um, a whole range of things. And I just think if you don't have that, I don't really know how you put the jigsaw back together. I think it's also important to remember that, um, you know, architects and, and, you know, councils, there's only so much we can do. You have to remember there are also developers and we love to demonise developers, mm. but they are actually paying the bills and the good ones can actually make change. They can put their foot down, they can demand better quality, they can refuse VMs, they can, um, you know, they are the people... Value management. Sorry, thank you. <laughs> um, sorry. And we find as a practice, if we are supported by good developers, we can do much better work. And I think that's really critical. And they need the support of the city, you know. I mean, our design competition process in Sydney, it's a partnership between the developer and the city. And um, I mean, I was saying this to you earlier today, but we do give a 10% bonus. You're required to go through a competition if your building's over 55 metres high or 1,500 square metres site area in the city of Sydney. But the developers, if they succeed in developing design excellence, which you have to do anyway, but you go through the competition process, on top of that, you get a 10% floor space bonus. So there's a carrot and a stick. And but we think it's well, it is getting welded on and the developers in Sydney are very proud. And we see that as something we do together. Yeah. So it's not an us and them at all. It's a partnership. The, oh. and I, and look, I should say as a City of Melbourne councillor, I've visited Sydney. I've actually sat in on the um, design competition process and I, I make no secret of the fact that I am a, a fan. I certainly want to see it um, trialled in Melbourne. The challenge we have in Victoria is that our uh, Victorian planning scheme does not uh, provide for that 10% um, bonus uh, for going through a design competition process and so there's not the carrot there to um, incentivise the industry to give it a go. Now, it does happen on some yeah. buildings, um, there, there, but, but it's, yeah. it's, it's not systematically embedded and part of the development community considerations in the way it has become in Sydney. We, we do have, in the central city at least, in, in the land affected by um, C270 and the D2, D2 Design and Development Overlay Schedule 10, the floor area uplift proposition. The floor area uplift proposition is... Um, a value-based system that's a little bit broken, but it's based on a public benefit. So it's not necessarily about a design competition, although that could be something that could be advocated to the state government as, a, as another factor. It's about the provision of affordable housing or through-block links or new parks or public amenities um, that can give you that little bit of uplift. And I've seen that work really well. And that um, I was talking to you earlier about a project where we're also facing a... a, a an unfortunate state government decision about a potential reduction in height, City of Melbourne supported, where there was a public benefit delivered that enabled an increase and, a, and, a, and it delivered a better project all round. Um, uh, that's yeah. a good segue. Um, I'm struck that we're talking about what's wonderful and, um, and what's been done and, uh, and, and some optimism and the toolkit. And they're great messages, but I'm also aware of some gnarly places in Melbourne where things are not yet excellent. And um, in a way, that's part of my Melbourne moment. And I'm interested in the kind of the... Well, my reaction is to some of the towers that went up along Elizabeth Street, fast and furious, with not much space between them, with, uh, with a ground floor that uh, is covered in posters, and I'm not sure what's inside it. Um, and, and 
what's the not yet um, and, you know, what is the gap between some of the gnarly stuff that's happening, um, some of the not quite excellent, um, and, and what do we need to do to raise the bar generally, not just on the special sites, not just on the NGV Contemporary or the, um, the public squares, and, and are we doing enough? I think there needs to be accountability for delivery. I mean, there's a focus on planning here, um, but, you know, working in developments and, you know, we've all... We know what happens to planning and we know what happens after planning and that accountability and assessment and making sure there's delivery and that delivery is consistent with the promises made at planning. And that's a loop that is missing, really missing, here in Melbourne. I think it needs to happen. Um, I mean, it's a res I personally think it's a resourcing issue in councils. It's, you know, it's, it's economics, you know. There's a lot... God, go up bloody in Brunswick and look at all those, those terrible buildings. But the economies are... It's really hard to... People are building apartment buildings, but just getting them to stack up and, and the layers of costs, are, you know. So uh, it's, it's about money. <laughs> And, Unfortunately, and builders' pricing and COVID and the impact of, on the supply chain and mm. cost of materials and you know builders going under and yeah. the the impact that has on our economy and the, and people it's it's there's it's nuanced how how we deal with that. I mean, I, I always think you know if you don't if you want to make money, don't care because it's a lot it's a hell of a lot easier, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what... And, you know, if you're building a development, if you're a developer and you're doing something in an area that doesn't have, you know, doesn't have that sort of upside, um, build shit, you know. You still sell it, you know. You still get it through. If it gets through council, you still build it, you know. And you've really got to care a lot to get good buildings, you know. It's such an anti-sustainability agenda, isn't oh, it? Of you course. know, if you think oh, about oh, it, God. you know, design excellence is about creating things to last. Absolutely. Um, I mean, on the integrity issue, we have as part of the competition process, once you've won the competition, you must remain the architect of record and you must um, have the jury have to sign off that the design integrity has been maintained throughout the process to final documentation. It's part of the ecosystem of the process. You can't get away from it. It strikes me too that... Um, the changes, I mean, bureaucracy gets in the way sometimes and says, oh, well, if you do this, uh, it'll be fine. And it sounds like that some of the things that have been done in Sydney are actually people who actually understand the process and have said, okay, we've got to change this. There's got to be signatures on the line. And, you know, I think that's really encouraging. I mean, you know, talk to someone else, they'll say it's not perfect, nothing's perfect, but it's making change, right? And that's what we're trying to do, yeah. City of Melbourne is, I say. One of the um, areas that is achievable, and it's fundamental, and it's um, Melbourne City Council has an obsession with it, and quite rightly, and that is the ground plane. The, the public realm, how does a building come to... It doesn't matter what the building does up in the sky. It doesn't, because you don't look up there. And when you see, do see the building in the sky, you see it from afar, and that builds the character of, of our city. But the ground plane, the connectivity, the opportunities, the meeting, greeting, uh, socialisation, the life, the materiality, all those things are not that hard to achieve. So this is... Except if the building up in the sky creates a windy ground plane. Oh, you, can't, you, you can't do that because, you know, we have to pass certain wind tests and all of that. But I agree totally. In fact, strangely, when we built Eureka, the wind patterns were better than when it wasn't there. How's that? And 
and I saw the wind tunnel. <laughs> can, I, so, can I just jump in and say how much yeah. I agree with you on that point, Carl? Um, when we um, did the planning scheme amendment C308, the better design guide for the central city, you, you know, its, it's catch cry, if you like, was the city at the eye level and really thinking about how the building works at the ground plane and how it works for somebody who's on the street um, interacting with the building. And, you know, I think about... You think about if you're walking along uh, Collins Street, you know, at the, at the, at the um, eastern end there and those beautiful old shops and the intricacy of the detail and the, the workmanship and the layers that have gone into that. It's, it's one of the most, I think, beautiful... Um, street retail settings anywhere in the world. And then I think about a lot of um, some of the not-so-successful recent developments we've seen where, you know, at the street level, it's an unbroken curtain of glass. Uh, it's just completely fe featureless, and it kills the street. Um, so I, I completely agree. Really yeah. thinking about that first 20 or so metres of the building and how it interfaces with the street and the people... Um, is absolutely critical. It can also um, help with um, respect for country um, because as architects, you know, respect for country and how you reflect that in a building is quite an interesting and challenging kind of um, event. Uh, and sometimes you see tokenism, eels in the pavement and this sort of thing, and they go, well, we've done respect for country. But the respect for place and the way a building engages. I w had the absolute pleasure and privilege of working with Jeeva Greenaway on a proposal for Fed Square East, decking, doing the decking. And his concern was how what we were doing related to the river corridor, which has been totally, you know, stuffed up by us. And um, and it was that to me that was the soul of it, to making things that affect you, not things that you look at. George, yeah, I was just going <laughs> to... You knew. Um, and I guess this kind of goes back to one of the first things that the DLM said was it, it, design excellence is about a, a building or a project that gives more than it takes. And I think um, what Carl's saying here, you know, that, that sort of refers to, yes, giving back to the people, giving back to community, but also giving back to country, giving back to the environment. And so I think design excellence, yes, it is something, you know, we all see it and we know when it's good, but it's now about what is this building doing that's beyond its just physical structure? Is it regenerative? Is it bringing landscape back in. We all love sitting under a tree in the sunshine drinking a coffee. I'm sure that's a Melbourne moment for everyone. Um, so, yes, it is about that. It is what, it, what is it giving back to people, to place, to country? Can I follow on that? Because my Melbourne moment, I mean, it's sort of, you know, I, I, a little bit like Carl, I've lived away from Melbourne. I came to Melbourne in the early 90s where the shops, uh, yeah, early... 90s and um, the shops were closed at lunchtime on Saturdays and it was just such a different place. I mean, um, but, and one thing I, and I'd lived in Canberra before that, Canberra's all about the horizon and you come here, no horizon, right? And you can't really get a context. You don't know where the water is, you don't know where the river is and it took me, you know, I went up in a high rise and, oh, there's, there's the, oh shit, there's the bay, you know. 
But um, my Melbourne moment is actually the river. And it's taken um, 30 years of living here to really understand, you know, it's so important. It's such a lovely place to go. And it's so Melbourne. And you don't actually see it in Melbourne, which I think is one of the pities. And when we talk about... Um, sorry. When we talk about place and... It, it's just automatic that that yeah. is so much part of, of this city that, and we need to celebrate it more. You know, we don't need to exploit it, but we need to understand how important it is, you know, coming through the city. Yeah. And I think, oh, oh, I was just thinking, understanding place, and we're talking about place and its history, place and its people, you know, Melbourne is so creative and exciting, and, it, you know, you walk through the city and you have the black box, you have street art, you have all of these exciting things going on. That's a reflection of the people of Melbourne coming into into the city. And um, it's it should, I think design excellence is a representation or, you know, capturing what the people want to see. And you notice that when people are there and at the place and, and utilising the place and being present in that place. Thank you. I'm aware that we haven't asked the audience for um, for questions, um, and we've heard a lot about uh, bravery and uh, the complexity and hard work that that design ex work design excellence takes. Uh, also, lots about the toolkit. Um, if it's okay with the panel, I might open up to questions from the audience. Thanks, Daniel. Is that on? Um, sorry. Can I make a comment, Bron? <laughs> um, I just wanted to thank you, everybody. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something that um, Bridget said in particular and to tease that because I think it's important for how Melbourne can be better. And it's coming from what Carl said about Melbourne being great. And I'd say Melbourne has been great, but it's not so great now. And it's what you pointed to, Bron, diametrically opposed, diagonally opposite the city. We're in a privileged part of it. Over there, there's a whole lot of shit towers that have come up. And C308 was partly in response to that and trying to fix that. And that goes to governance, how they, those decisions were made, which in my understanding, I think I can say, is to do with a particular minister at the time who overrode advice from others. Um, my point is, you, need, you actually do need clear planning rules because unfortunately, some architects are sophisticated, I'm arguing with all of you, uh, but most actually, or many are not, and a lot of what's being built out there is not sophisticated, and a lot of architects, either they're not trying very hard or a lot of the time they're not being paid very well. So you need rules. The planning system has to say, must, Carl, I reckon, but you've also got to have fantastic process, and that's the design culture. And back to Bridget's point, it's complex. You need all those layers. And we had a great culture. It's actually going backwards a bit. I think City of Melbourne's work's awesome in 270 and 308 and the, the work it's doing now. So we've got a chance to come back up. But you've got to demand it. The DNA might be there, but it's not strong enough alone. So you have to const constantly nurture that culture as well as setting a baseline. I just had to say that because it matters so much. And just... Thanks, Shelley. Um, couldn't agree more, and I agree with the rules, because I think everyone likes a starting point. It gives you somewhere to argue against. But I think one of the things we've found in Sydney that's been really critical as well is the resoluteness of the leadership. 
you know, we have a mayor who actually trusts the system, doesn't intervene in the planning process. Now, when I started at the city, that wasn't the case. The former mayor did. Um, and now we have a design culture and a system and a process and an ecosystem and skilled up staff. And so the, the leadership can be resolute and trust and doesn't intervene and, and doesn't crumble and sticks to the guns. And I think that's made a huge difference to Sydney. I think it's important what you say. I mean, not every architect should do every job, right? I mean, you know, it's a specialist. We are becoming a very specialist profession and there are people who are good at housing and there are people who are really bad at housing and there are people who are doing it just to make a buck, which, you know, is fine. But, um, yeah, not every architect is the same. And But I do know and talking to peers and, and you know, practices who have much stronger design profiles than mine, they get put through the ringer at councils with projects, whereas practices who might just put in Joe Average applications, they get stamped. So it's sort of like there's got to be some, you know, some understanding that if you are, if you, if you are having people who've got the, the runs on the board, there's got to be a, a sophistication in those discussions, I think. But, you know, I think the rules are really important but rules are made to be broken as well. And how do you how do you create that flexibility? True. Agree. Agree. I agree, Shelley. A suite of good design processes. Um, we're, we're running out of time, and I just thought I might get a short, sharp crescendo from each of the panellists um, on the question of what does the future look like for design excellence um, for Melbourne or elsewhere? A lot of hard work and commitment. I can go if you want. Um, look, I'm really enthused about the Melbourne Design Review Panel and the, and the role that that's playing. I've been had the privilege of being involved in three sessions now, three completely different... I can't talk about them, I don't think, but three completely different projects, completely different things. Um, there was a, a real... In, in the, at least in the ones I was involved with, a real desire on the behalf of the applicants and the architects who were presenting to collaborate and to, to hear from the, the, um, the people in the panel... And I think there's going to be better outcomes because of it. My heart lifts hearing you say that, Daniel. I mean, I'd like to think that everyone, the people, you know, the public really demand it. If you think of um, countries like um, Denmark or Holland, where I think design sensibility is more in their DNA. And, you know, the more you see good things, the more you want them. So I like to think that everyone in Melbourne or Sydney or wherever would demand it. And... I mean, you think about how important the act of making architecture is, and I think maybe the public don't even get that sometimes. You know, we're this incredible profession that are kind of synthesising the mind of the architect and ideas and invention with the reality of our cities and the complexities and trying to mediate that and bring that together to make a building or a space. It's such a bloody difficult thing to do. And then we add in excellence. So if the public really respect what we do and demand it from us, it will make it easiest easier to get there and it'll never be over. I agree. And oh, sorry, Carl, I'm just jumping in there. Um, I think it's, um, you know, one that's very collaborative with all industry, creative industries and also all experts without the, outside the built um, environment as well, scientists, data analysis, whatever, um, just to build and generate more ideas. Um, and then it's a, it, it's a place of the people, um, really. I... I um Bridget very articulately um, said exactly what I would have said, was going to say. 
Um, I think this, certainly in Melbourne, Sydney, there is a, a there is a DNA of design excellence. We all want it. No one doesn't want it. And importantly and commercially, all the people that end up living or working in the architecture want it. So the pressure on developers to um, compete uh, means they've got to do better jobs. And I have to say, we work with a lot of the big end of town in developers, and it's a different conversation now than it was in the halcyon days. It's, it is all about, um, you know, more respect for purchases, more respect for the city. I, I'm, and again, um, you know, the eternal optimist, I think that there's so much energy being directed at great design, um, and the, the strength of the respect for country has put a whole new complexion on how we as designers think. And um, whilst it's very respectful for our indigenous forebearers, it's also making us far more respectful of what we do, how we do it, and where we do it. Um, any other final, final thoughts? <laughs> Future of design excellence? Uh, well, Bronwyn, I haven't got to do my Melbourne moment yet. Uh, oh. do, I get to sneak, do I get to sneak that in? I've got, I've got so many of them. And look, overall, I think it's that the, the layers of the city and, the, and the, the, the jigsaw effect you get and, and those little moments of wonderment or epiphany that you have when you discover this little corner of Melbourne or you're in a public place and the vibe, the energy is so distinctly Melbourne and, and quite magical. Um, but my... Melbourne moment, I think, occurs whenever I cross the Evan Walker Bridge, which of itself is this brilliant example of design. And, um, you know, pre-COVID, I always loved it because you could just literally feel the energy of the city um, coursing through the, the veins of the city as you stood there because it was just so busy as people, pedestrians, were making their way from the CBD over to South Bank. But I did have a moment during the lockdown where, you know, after 14 hours of Zoom calls or something, I went out for, to get some exercise and I walked through the city and I went and stood on the Evan Walker Bridge right at the apex of the bridge and I looked around. It was about 10pm at night uh, and I think it was a Thursday evening. So, you know, you could imagine what the city would be like on a, you know, on a Thursday evening uh, in normal times. I could not see a single person. Not a single human was in sight. And, you know, you could, I could look a kilometre up the river in each direction in a city of five and a half million people and I could not see a single human being. And, you know, at that moment, I, I actually felt scared. Like, it was like a city without people is a really scary proposition. Cities need people um, and without them, uh, as I said, it was, it was, it was terrifying. Um, so I've never forgotten that moment for me during lockdown. And, it, you know, it's one of those things that powers me in terms of bringing back the buzz of Melbourne, making this city glow again and just making sure that in every decision we make, we're always about putting people first and getting that livability back and putting that design excellence at the absolute centre of everything that we do. Um, in terms of um, what, what's the key going forward, um, look, I think we've done some good things in terms of uh, planning scheme amendments, putting in place new 
new controls and, and, and other things. And I think there's more to go on that front, most certainly. Um, but I think the big thing is for, for and this is, goes for all of us, to continue to drive that cultural change that we need to see in Melbourne, where, you know, second best is just not good enough. Average is just not good enough. Because this is fucking Melbourne. <laughs> and we won't settle for anything but excellence when it comes to design in this town. And I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm so pumped to see that it's standing room only here tonight. You know, here we are on a cold autumn night in the dark park and it's standing room only. Like, this is a city that cares. Like, we really do care about this stuff. So I think all of us have got to be evangelists for um, uh, better um, in this city um, and, um, and proselytise to anyone who will listen about how um, we are a design city and, and we um, can do so much uh, better than we are. And so um, if anything comes from this evening tonight, let us all go onwards and make this city a city of world-renowned design excellence. Apologies for a few swear words in there, especially for the children. That's a great note to end on. And, um, and we'll delete those out later. That'll be right. Um, can I thank everybody for coming out tonight? Um, and, you know, it is a cold, dark night and uh, it's great to have these conversations in uh, M Pavilion. Uh, really grateful that M Pavilion is here, which is a very important part of inviting good design in the city. Um, can I thank the panel um, for their input and preparation and their anecdotes about um, Melbourne moments? Uh, and I really look forward to hearing more from this group as we, um, as we get into the future of design excellence and invite good design outcomes. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Robin. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.